I'm Heidi. And this is Alan. And we're here to introduce the final episode of Remnants of Resistance. This episode was recorded live in mid-October on the campus of California State University, Northridge. You're about to hear the Queer Studies faculty and students who hosted each episode in the series discuss their experiences working on the project in front of a live audience. We hope you enjoy the episode and that you've had as much fun listening to the series as we had creating it. And that now brings us to the panel discussion portion of today's event. And so we have just a few um, sort of questions that we're gonna go down and have everybody who participated in the series answer. And then after that, we'll open it up for questions from the, from the audience. I suppose we'll just start with Heidi since she's sitting on the end. Would you please introduce yourself, any student research assistants or collaborators that you worked with? Um, share with us perhaps what department you come from, what your research generally focuses on. All right, hi everyone, I'm Heidi Schumacher. I teach in queer studies and gender and women's studies. My research generally focuses on feminist and queer theory. Um, and I co-created my episode with two of the most exceptional students I've ever worked with, L'Oreal Wimberly and Kate Ridgewell, who are gonna speak with you later also. Um, so the three of us did this together. Um, and now what, what my episode focuses on? Yeah. What I miss, okay. <laughs> so because I'm representing the two of them, we wrote down what we focused on and then they'll talk to you later. Okay. So the year is 1976 and gay folk have been making major political progress in Los Angeles. Tom Bradley has been elected mayor with relationships being built with queer communities, but LAPD chief Ed Davis is a different story. As evidenced in his memos, he isn't thrilled about all this progress. He's particularly worried that homosexuality has been taken out of the DSM manual and assures his cops that doesn't mean it is normal to be gay. Gay men are, quote, dangerous psychopaths preying on children. Meanwhile, somewhere in Illinois, a postal inspector, a very nosy postal inspector, takes it upon himself to subscribe to private mailing lists of groups of marginalized folks so that he can open their mail and inspect it. He comes across an advertisement for a charity event at a bathhouse raising money for the Gay and Lesbian Community Service Center. It's a slave auction. And my co-collaborators and I are not thrilled about the idea of using a slave auction casually like that, but in 1976, this was really a like, cultural practice. Like Even high schools had slave auctions to raise money. Um, okay, so this particular event involved many successful gay activists in Los Angeles. He purchases tickets and gives them to the LAPD. The LAPD goes to Universal Studios and borrows costumes <laughs> so they can go undercover as gay. They do an exceptionally large raid, 120 cops, two helicopters. It cost a lot. They invited photographers and videographers. Their purpose seemed to be to ignite moral panic. That is to dispel myths that gay people are normal and instead publicly perp walk gay men dressed in leather SM outfits in front of cameras. They charge all of the men there with slavery. And they write a very convenient narrative in their police report, which is found in the Bolo collection. No mention is made that it's a charity auction. No mention is made of this nosy postal inspector joining private mailing lists or of the fact that it's a private event. The undercover officers describe the beers they drink, the details of the bodies of the men they watch. They are explicit, dramatic, and detailed, but they don't ever try to stop the slave auction before it happens. They don't ever consult gay cops to ask for cultural context. For example, what is consent like in the bathhouse? Why? Because LAPD doesn't allow gay cops at the time. Luckily, the public doesn't respond to the salacious images and inflammatory language the way Davis hoped. For the most part, they wonder why city resources were wasted on a private, invitation-only, ticketed event where everyone was consenting. The mayor's aide even attends a benefit to free the incarcerated, and the city council calls Davis on his spending and the outcome and establishes a precedent still in place today about having transparency for major raids. 
We found so much resonance with critiques of policing of marginalized and minoritized communities that we hear on the news every night. When beat cops aren't allowed to participate in the policing of their own neighborhoods where they come from, the system lacks cultural context for behavior. When the people making systemic decisions in the criminal justice system are diverse, marginalized groups can be targeted. And we also found much resonance with what was clearly a backlash to progress gained. These activists had just had wins, and the community had had wins. If you hate the fact that homosexuality isn't a mental disorder any longer, why not show the public how sick these people really are uh, with photographic evidence? One doesn't have to take a huge leap to think about today's wake of the same-sex marriage gains. Drag performers are grooming children. Keep those kids away. If we don't learn from history, we are apparently doomed to repeat it. And our exploration of this case shows how many communities across Los Angeles share a common interest in asking hard questions about policing and decision-making in the criminal justice system and the importance of collective action to challenge bigots running for office who would have the decision-making power to define who constitutes a threat to public safety. All right, Colleen. <laughs> Hello, my name is Colleen Tripp. I hope everyone's having fun today. Um, so I'm an associate professor of English uh, at CSUN. My specialties are 19th century US literature and contemporary literature. Uh, I tend to focus on research topics um, such as uh, race, diversity, equity, uh, gender sexuality, uh, space and place, uh, popular culture, popular forms and genres. Um, and I'm here today because L'Oreal Wimberly and I um, created a podcast on cosmic horror. Um, cosmic horror is, you know, both a subgenre, it can be a trope, it can be a motif. Um, but specifically, our podcast, we uh, discussed both the history of cosmic horror in horror pulps of the 1920s and 30s. Um, but also in contemporary texts, right? We're seeing a current renaissance of cosmic horror. Um, so I'm referring to texts like Jordan Peele's Nope, right? Um, Sylvia Moreno Garcia's Mexican Gothic. Um, what else? Lovecraft Country. I'm trying to think back to our podcast. Um, so we asked, you know, general questions, right? What is cosmic horror? Um, how do representations of gender and sexuality, um, how are they represented and sort of interact with cosmic horror in these tales? Um, and we specifically looked at, in the horror pulps, um, uh, one magazine in particular, Weird Tales, which is known for the contributions of a really famous horror author, H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, he's been obviously in some of you know the news lately due to Lovecraft Country and other um, adaptations of Lovecraft stories. Um, so we look at Weird Tales, and we look specifically at um, H.P. Lovecraft, and we look uh, in tandem at Christopher Pike's 1990s horror paperbacks. Actually, has anyone read Christopher Pike's novels? Is this, was this like a thing to anyone? Is it just me? Maybe <laughs> you and me, Laura. Uh, so um, we, we look at these horror pulps in tandem, uh, and we had a lot of fun. And, and in our conclusion, we close read H.P. Lovecraft's The Thing on the Doorstep, um, in tandem with Christopher Pike's Monster, which is a, a horror novel. Um, and that's, that's it. Thank you, Colleen. And now Marie. Hi, my name is Marie Cartier, and I teach in gender women's studies and queer studies. Um, my uh, research 
for my PhD focused on lesbian bars. And my book is Baby, You Are My Religion, Women, Gay Bars, and Theology Before Stonewall. And thank you, One Institute, for doing the screening of our film based on the book Saturday. Really appreciated it as part of Circa, and I'm really excited to be part of this. So one of the things, um, oh, and my class is here. Uh, I teach LA Gay History and Activism. QS302, LA in Transit, and several different topics in gender women's studies. But one of the things that is really important when we look at gay bar culture, lesbian bar culture, gay girl culture, is how do people find their way there? So my podcast, along with Mariah Gonzalez, my student assistant who can't be here today, we looked at um, it's 1950s, where is my lesbian bar? <laughs> the first thing was that there is no lesbian bar because nobody uses the word lesbian. Uh, so that was the first thing we talked about, and it was really exciting to go through the archives, and I think we're going to be exploring that in a little more detail later. But the idea of how do you find your way to these places, that was a really big deal because I know for a lot of my students, the idea of finding anything without the internet is a black hole of nothing, right? So how would I have found my way when it's outlawed to even put anything out there, right? So one of the things that was very exciting going through the materials and going into the podcast was seeing the trajectory of publicity and what I would define as publicity to get people to these places, how they found their way. And LA is a great city to do queer research. There's a lot of fabulous um, archives that I have explored before and um, it was really wonderful to explore this subject. It's the 1950s, where's my lesbian bar? Which I think I would have been asking in the 1950s. It's the 1950s, where's my lesbian bar? So we'll um, talk some more about that. Fantastic, thanks, Marie. And now Sid. Hi, folks. <clears throat> um, my name is Sid Hansen, uh, they, them pronouns. I'm a professor in the philosophy department and an affiliated faculty member in queer studies. My research focuses on contemporary European philosophy, especially the work of Michel Foucault. Um, and I also work in philosophy of sex, gender, and sexuality. Um, the most recent version of my research has especially focused on uh, the intersection of science and debates about trans identity and trans rights. So my episode engages in that topic in particular. It's entitled um, Noise in the Trans Archive. And I look at the Jan Daly and John Money Correspondence Collection, which is held in the, the below archive uh, at CSUN. It's basically a bunch of boxes of letters between a freelance sex columnist, Jan Daly, and uh, a very controversial sexologist, uh, John Money, who is associated with um, the notion of gender. He's often considered to be the psychologist that invented uh, the notion of gender. And there, uh, it starts in 1979, and uh, they write to each other for two decades. And it kicks off with Jan Daly writing a letter to John Money about her experience of noise pollution uh, because she lived near LAX. Um, she was part of a court case uh, pro uh, 
suing the city of Los Angeles for uh, the ways that noise uh, pollution from uh, runways affected people living nearby. And in particular, uh, she argued that her sex life was really affected by jet noise. Um, and so she reaches out to John Money to talk about this topic, and they continue to write letters to each other for two decades. And I was just kind of curious about the way this conversation between them started. Um, and what my episode does is it gives a kind of overview of John Money and his uh, very controversial position in the history of uh, kind of trans rights in the United States. Um, and I use the theme of noise and this topic of noise um, as a way to kind of tell a story about John Money's research. Um, so it's, uh, that's basically what it's about. <laughs> All right, thank you, Sid. And Sochi. Yes, I'm gonna stand up so I can see your beautiful faces better. <laughs> hey. um, my name is Xochitl Aviso. I am a professor of religious studies in the area of women and religion and the philosophy of sex, gender, and sexuality. My research generally is studying Christian congregations that try to experiment with new forms of being church. Um, and I really bring a feminist and queer analysis of the form that their church takes, that their embodiment takes, that their practices take. Um, and for the podcast, I was my collaborator. Um, I was very lucky to work with Emma Martinez, a student here at CSUN, and you'll get to hear from, from them a little bit in a little bit. And the subject of our podcast is really about touches or kind of explores the history of how queer Catholics brought together their Catholicism and their queerness. Because the truth in religious studies and the truth in all our human practices, right, is that there's always been resistors of normativity. That includes the Catholic Church. And so we dive into some documents that um, capture that. Um, one is Insight, a gay quarterly of gay, wait, a Catholic quarterly of gay opinion. And the other one is a church bulletin, um, the Ecumenical Catholic Church, which is basically an explicitly queer Catholic denomination. And it's their, um, the tablet, their kind of regular bulletin that they would mail out. So you get to hear a little bit about that. Thank you, Sochi. And now Omar. I'm not going to stand. So. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everybody. My name is Omar Gonzalez, and I teach in queer studies, and also in Chicano Chicano studies, and also in EOP. So I was really excited to do this research. Um, right before the shutdown, I was, doing, I was visiting faculty at UCLA, where I uh, received my PhD in Chicano Chicano Studies, and I, where my work is um, intersecting and examining the intersection of, of queerness and Chicanidad, or what we call joteria, and joteria is basically like queerness, taking that word joto, jota, which is a, a, a pejorative, but 
there is actually a field now called Joteria Studies, and I'm part of that. So I was looking through one of the archives and I just stumbled upon this archive of this queer Chicano activist who died of AIDS, and he was part of ACT UP. And I know ACT UP has, the history of ACT UP has been documented really well, but not the, if, I, I always thought, are, were there any brown participants in ACT UP? And because I was part of a group called ALGO, an organization that's still around, founded in 1985, it was a queer Latinx organization in Austin, Texas, of all places. And it's the longest surviving queer Latinx <laughs> org in the country. And so I was staff and I was an activist there in the late 90s, early 2000s, then I moved here. Um, and so that's always been my question about where, you know, uh, creating this genealogy of queer brown activism and, as it relates to not just queerness, but also HIV and also other issues like such as immigration. So the title of my podcast is Honoring the Dead, Remembering the Living, Documenting the AIDS Crisis in the Queer Chicano Community Through the Process of Gloria Anzaldúa's Conocimiento. So Gloria Anzaldúa, um, I could speak for hours about her, but she's really important in Chicano Chicano studies, but also feminist studies, women's studies, and just very an important scholar. She passed away almost 20 years ago now, but her work is still getting out. There's a lot of work in her archive that is slowly being published. And this, this, this process of conocimiento is a seven-stage process of healing from trauma and decolonization. So right now, and it's actually right now in my 301 class, uh, we're, we're reading the article and, and discussing this process. And it's, she's a poet mainly, but she's also a historian and uh, just a, write, a brilliant writer but, and theorist. And so I use these stages of conocimiento to analyze what I found in the archive. So, um, and then this is just a, a bit of the historical context, and I'd like to read it to you. It's the 1980s and the ancestors call. Divas to the dance floor, please. The siren song of the dance floor beckons queer brown bodies to our church, our sacred space, our home, to dance, to make community, to hunt or be hunted. Yet an unknown presence is making itself known in the bathhouses, the back rooms, and the sex clubs. The young and the beautiful will soon be disfigured and discarded. The faces of the afflicted are all skeletal white while the Chicano queer community screams in a vacuum. We are dying too. I create this podcast as a queer emotionally, the Nahuatl term for codex or writing that will serve as an historical marker for younger queer Chicanx men and others to proclaim we've always been here. Thank you, Omar. Mm -hmm. And finally, Stephanie. Hi, um, I want to apologize. I'm not sick. I just, as a side hobby, I teach martial arts and I yelled at a lot of kids this weekend. Um, it, was, it was a test. So, yeah. Um, hi, I'm Stephanie Drew. I'm a professor in the Department of Psychology. Um, by training, I am a cognitive psychologist and neuroscientist. My specialty is visual, I promise it's relevant. Um, my specialty is in uh, visual attention, visual perception. In my lab, we do a lot of um, ocular health and looking at virtual reality, augmented reality. We have a survey for Zoom fatigue, as well as EEG, which is recording of the brain, looking at brain activity, different stimuli, as well as how, how people use technology to learn and cognitive processes. Uh, we affectionately say in my lab that we do eyes and brains. If it has to do with your eyes or your brains, I'm interested in it. That being said, um, it was a pleasure to do, be invited on this podcast. I'm really excited about it. Um, I did this work with my graduates, recent graduated master student, Ariana Roby, and they are a clinical 
um, graduate for clinical psychology program. But when they first came to me uh, as a student I was mentoring two years ago, they said that um, they had this very powerful um, experience, really tragic experience, um, looking at um, with an individual, which we discuss more in our podcast. I'm going to leave that space for her to discuss. Um, but it kind of shaped her career. And so she really wanted to go into clinical psychology, but is really passionate about doing more for LGBT community, specifically non-binary individuals. And there's not that representation in the literature. So when they came to me, we said, okay, how can we do this intersection of empirical research and looking at this? So um, what our podcast looks at is um, they were really interested in biases in the workplace for non-binary individuals, and if you present more masculinely or femininely or with non-conformity, does that affect your higher ability, your ratings of competence, et cetera? So what we have in my lab is we have a very special camera that lets us film with two lenses. And so when you film, and then we can put it in a VR headset and you put the headset on, you feel like you're there. So what um, we designed was Ari first had a focus group with non-binary individuals to really talk to them about their experiences, to really get to our research question of interest. And then we asked several of those individuals to be actors as non-binary applicants for a professional job. And they came in and we recorded a job interview with a panel of three like this, but one of the panelists was the camera. So when you put on the headset, you feel like you are actually in the interview room. And we actually had the interview take place and the individuals um, rate their masculinity, their competence, their higher ability, et cetera. And then we brought in the archives piece because Psychology doesn't have a great history with gender. Um, that, this may come as a shock, spoiler alert. It's not great. And so Ari brought that piece in as well. Um, we talk a little bit about the DSM and some not great things that have happened in psychology and sort of the transition we're making. Uh, it's only in like the last you know, decade or so that there's even any, um, we found, and I'll let Heidi talk more about the archive pieces that we're using. And so the psychological piece of the history of gender in psychology and how that piece as a clinical psychologist as well as this uh, very formative incidents that happened in high school with her kind of shaped her career tra trajectory. And so we'll be talking about a piece on the history of psych, her experiences as well as the empirical scientific research looking at higher ability biases in non-binary individuals using virtual reality. All right. Yeah, go ahead. Great. <laughs> All right, so um, something that's of interest to me that some people in our audience and even on the panel may also have noticed is that there is nary an historian amongst the group <laughs> in our, in our uh, group of faculty up here who participated in this project. And so, you know, as an archivist, I am personally, I'm especially curious to hear from everyone about the sort of process of creating your episode, especially your experience in exploring and using archival materials in particular. Was it anyone's first time? I'm dying to know. Yeah, Sochi. Oh, what? Okay, <laughs> <laughs> what is that? That was your first time. <laughs> <laughs> really, really good. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, so it was my first time engaging archival documents, right? That's the question. Yeah. I mean, it was in terms of it not just being in the stacks. You know what I mean? Like, because, you know, we definitely engage uh, primary source documents, you know, all the time. But to go into the ones in the boxes, <laughs> you know, it was definitely my first time. And, and in terms of the process, there is a little bit of a reverence, you know, that you kind of come to it with because you need a special person to bring them out for you. You know, there's special rules for engaging with them. And so just definitely 
has this, this sense of privilege of getting to see, right? This, what otherwise would, to me, would be a buried part of history that I would have no access to, but the archives made that available to me. And this project, right, was the catalyst for me to take that step to do this for the first time. Um, so it was very cool and exciting. Would you like me to call on you? You, you know, like people, oh, you can like just jump people? in. Yeah, oh, yeah, oh, okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know we were, you know, going to uh, So hello again, uh, my name is Colleen Tripp. So as I already mentioned, my training is in English. So I actually technically have an MA in literature, which is a little different from English and we can talk about that later. I also have a PhD in American studies. So I, I do have some interest in history. Um, technically, I would say that my preferred method is historicism. You could call me a new historicist. Um, and by that, I basically mean that I think that um, we achieve a sort of more rich understanding of texts and arts and culture, um, thinking about them in a context-based um, approach, right? Um, you might miss satire or sarcasm or certain tones if you don't understand the time, place, the author, that sort of thing. Um, so for my process of exploring the archives, I do have some uh, experience in archives. I was a fellow at the American Antiquarian Society. Um, I, do, I said I'm a specialist in 19th century US lit, so I do tend to sort of love that era. Um, but I do have uh, some expertise in the contemporary as well. Um, 20s and 30s kind of-ish. Um, so I didn't, I had to actually do research um, because as I said, I know 19th century and contemporary, then there's sort of the period in between, not, not a little fuzzy there. Um, so I had to sort of think about the interwar period, so the 20s and 30s, right, the between the world wars. Um, I also wanted to look into the history of the pulps. Um, I mean, because my, my sort of philosophy or sort of thinking of when you enter archives, you want the archives or archi uh, artifacts to tell a story, right? You want them to tell the story. It's not you telling, telling the story and sort of the artifacts are being placed in such a way that creates your narrative. You want the, the artifacts themselves um, to sort of speak to you in a, a specific way, right? Um, but you don't want to go in with a blindfold, right? You, you want to be actually um, engaged and knowledgeable about what you are looking at. Um, and so that's what we did. We sort of, uh, L'Oreal and I, L'Oreal right here, by the way, uh, um, we uh, did some research before, um, and we actually did a number of visits to the collections. Um, so we did some initial research. We went to the collections. Um, I'm sure the assistants were a little annoyed with me by the end, because <laughs> I kept visiting. Um, so yeah, so then we did our sort of first pass through, um, and then we um, kind of ruminated, uh, formed ideas, um, and then from there, we started to think, okay, well, these really, I already knew how gender and sexuality and the horror genres speak to one another. Um, I mean, we can think going back to even uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, right? In the transatlantic US and uh, Britain, it was a very popular text. It has informed a lot of our um, tropes of vampirism. Um, we don't even know it but it has, um, even though technically it found uh, its way into Europe through folklore, um, but Bram Stoker really popularized it, is what I'm saying. Um, and so thinking about sort of tropes of Gothic horror and the way in which it interacts in gender and sexuality in a number of tales um, is sort of something that's at the forefront. Um, but specifically with cosmic horror, which I, I knew um, was present now, we were sort of experiencing a renaissance of it. Um, cosmic horror, by the way, um, it's, it's a kind of, 
it gives you an affect of a peeling back of reality. It changes perception of what you know to be true. Um, it kind of probes the idea of the unknown, right? Um, cosmic horror tales usually touch upon um, other worlds, um, uh, unearthed knowledge, unearthed texts, um, other civilizations. And that's when, when I say it peels back your, your idea of reality is that it's sort of questioning you know, what you know is true, right? Um, so with that being said, gender sexuality, so we can think about um, cosmic horror as being about our body of knowledge of the universe and the cosmos, right? Um, we, we, there are things about the universe we do not know. We are discovering new things every day. Um, so that is a body of knowledge that we have created a number of categories, um, ways of knowing it, sciences about it, um, but we truly don't actually have as firm of a grip on it as we would like to think that we do. Um, and the same could be said about gender and sexuality, right? We think we talk a lot about the history of gender and sexuality, and in many ways, this is a body um, of knowledge that we have created, um, trying to create you know, whether it's binaries, dualism, some sort of taxonomies of people. Um, but truly, it's something that's beyond our scope of knowledge. So that's how I put these two together, how we put these two together. I wish you were up here. Anyway. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, so um, that is sort of the framework in which we were approaching um, these artifacts and archives. And so just serendipitously, by the third time, I think, is when we uh, just, so, yeah, by the third time, I would say we started to see the similarities and even the illustrations and the covers between uh, Weird Tales and Christopher Pike uh, horror novels. Um, there are actually paperbacks, so just a kind of um, trivia. Um, the paperback revolution it was sort of the predecessor of um, pulp fiction, pulp magazines, right? Um, and pulp magazines were the predecessor, um, or no, the, the subsequent after sort of um, the Penny Dreadfuls and Dime Novels and that sort of thing. Um, so anyway, that's at that third session is when we started to see similarities in illustration. We started to see even similarities in narrative types and conventions. Um, so for example, H.P. Lovecraft's The Thing on the Doorstep and Christopher Pike's Monster, um, we've noticed they start in the middle of things. In Medias Res, it means it starts sort of in the middle of the narrative. Um, it begins with major characters killing their friends. But the reason, and they both announce in both narratives, the uh, major characters announce why they're killing their friends, and it's because um, they're no longer human, right? So then, so goes the story that, um, you know, it's basically a number of trans species beings. I, I say that because they're literally fish human beings and then bat human beings that have taken over and they're from another planet, right? Um, and literally, so that is the story. I mean, they're very similar. Um, and from there, then, we were able to kind of craft the podcast, and it was wonderful. Sorry, okay. that was long. No, it's okay. Thanks, Colleen. I'll, I'll go next, because I'm also going to talk about what we're Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, we have to do quite a bit. Um, so, my first, so I love the archives. I love the word, re like, reverence to kind of think about what it's like to be there. I'm really nerdy. I just love to be there. And probably, I want to say, like, seven or eight years. So, Ellen sometimes shows me cool things. She'll just be like, this is cool. <laughs> so like seven or eight years ago, she showed me this arrest report. And I knew a little bit about sort of like Los Angeles history at the time. And I was really skeptical of what I saw in the arrest report. So I brought in several of my classes to the archives. And it was one of the items we put out for students to look at. 
And every single time without fail, the students would look at the item and then report to the class. And what they would say is, it's terrible. Slavery was happening in the 70s in Los Angeles. This is absolutely horrible. The gay people were had slaves more slave trading. And this isn't about the students not getting it. This is about how well the police are crafting the narrative, right? That if you don't have this like context and a knowledge of queer communities, this narrative becomes the truth. And this becomes what happened and 40 men are arrested for slavery, you know? And, and it was really hard to see past the way they had constructed the truth. So I was really excited to get to like pull at that with L'Oreal and with Kate and kind of start to uh, take every part of this arrest report and try to figure out like what's behind this version. Um, so I wanted to invite them up because they did a lot of that polling and they're gonna talk really briefly about sort of what that was like and what they did. Hi everybody, I'm Kate. I'm L'Oreal. So um, we have spent uh, many, many, many hours looking through many, many archives, trying to find as much information as we could. Um, I think the part that stuck out the most to me in terms of digging through the archives was uh, L'Oreal and I were both introduced to this, as was Heidi, uh, from this arrest record. And that crafts a very specific narrative. And as I was putting in every single name of every single person arrested, I started to find their voices and their story of what happened that night. And it was very different from the arrest record. And I found various interview articles with them. I also found articles that they wrote themselves depicting the events of that night. And that was so exciting to like see these voices that the LAPD tried to stifle come alive in the archives. So that was the biggest like breaking point from like no breakthrough for me not breaking point. Um, that was that was when I really got excited. Yes. So for me, um, after I was like one of Heidi's students reading this report, like oh my gosh, I can't believe they had slaves in the in the seventies. So after I did that, um, <laughs> yeah, after I moved on from that and saw the other document that I probably was supposed to read first, um, then I was like okay, well. Let's look at some of the drummer magazines where they mention the leather fraternity who put this slave auction on. And in that uh, drummer magazine, I saw that this uh, leather fraternity was extremely exclusive. Like, no names are being used. Like, everything is just so on the hush hush. So then I was like, well, how did Mr. Ken Elsesser get this invite? Was he secretly a uh, Leather fraternity member, I started going down this, this dark path. Um, it ended up not being that. What happened was um, the one of the gentlemen who was putting on the slave auction, John Embry, he sent them out to the members, um, but the response wasn't very well. So he was like, okay, I've got to do something. And he had this mailing list that somehow Mr. Ken Elsesser ended up on, still he may have been a member, I'll look that up later on my own, but he got this by somehow getting on John Embry's mailing list. And he saw it and because the LAPD was just acting up back then, um, he was like, I have to report this to the police officers. So then I wanted to look him up and I found that he seems to go after minorities a lot in Los Angeles mm -hmm. from his Illinois home. So that to me was just like the, one of the most exciting things. I mean, more exciting things happened later, but that was what really was just like, oh my gosh, like 
this is something here. There's, they're up to no good. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So let's see who hasn't had a chance to talk yet. Maybe Marie. Yeah. Um, well, I have done I have done research at the Kinsey, and I'm on the advisory board for the June Mazur Lesbian Archives, and I have material stored in the performance collection of the one, and also at the Moving Image at, at Moving Image Collection at UCLA, the Legacy Collection. Um, but I hadn't done a lot of research here, except that I've brought classes almost every year here, my LA queer history and activism class. And one of the things that um, the below has done so beautifully is put out materials that are important to the different decades. And one, uh, something I have all of my students do is hold the first issue of one, that's from 1953, that says, uh, if you are accused, you're guilty. And I really like, not like, but I want the students to hold that and think, this is all, what if this is all I have? Like, it's 1953, and this is what I've got. If you're accused, you're guilty. So <clears throat> that was, I talk about that on the podcast. But the big thing in this, it's 1950s, where's my lesbian bar? What's really important to remember about the, these spaces is this is the only space for gathering, there is no other space. I interviewed 102 people for my book. Um, nobody went, everybody said it was the only place. I mean, I called it Baby or My Religion because it was a sexier title, but for this, it's the only place. So how are you gonna find your way there? And that's what I really wanted to explore, like that part. And you're in this world where you pick up something, to be accused is to be guilty. But I still am who I, I might be who I am, but I don't know because I've never seen these people. I don't know. So <clears throat> I started talking about um, Well of Loneliness that was 1920 and was really the, one of the few things that was in print that somebody from the 40s might pick up and go, oh, I exist. This, I may have nothing in common with Stephen and Mary, these British aristocrats, but one of my informants from the Midwest 40s, it's, that's a long story that's on the podcast, but um, not that long a story, but it's a story that's on the podcast, that just reading that, and she said to me, I didn't need permission, I just needed an explanation. So finding something in print that says, oh, I exist, this thing that I'm feeling, and so then I jump in the podcast to um, the boom of pulp novels, which you've mentioned. The pulps from the 1950s, there was a lesbian or gay girl pulp, like, renaissance. I mean, just huge. So when The Price of Salt was released in 1952 in hardcover, it had very modest sales. It had some good critical reviews. But when it was released in 1953 in paperback, it sold a million copies, like literally a million copies. And that was the movie that became Carol in 2015. So the, why were these pulps so important? The authors of those pulps have talked about how in the middle of the pulp, they would put the names of real bars. And so it was really exciting in, to go through them and to have my assistant, Mariah Gonzalez, you know, to find like, okay, so on page 64, they talk about going to the Flamingo Club. You know, on page 75, they talk about going to the Duchess in New York, or they talk about going to the If Club or the Open Door in LA. And so if I'm reading those, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna get to New York and I'm gonna find out the address of the Duchess. Because the two other two ways that you could find your way 
to a gay girl bar would be to ask a cab driver or follow a butch woman. Those were, docu those were the ways that my informants, and so like, there's no publicity, there's no, and so that, like actually tracking that and the titles of the pulp. So the titles go from We Walk Alone, and then into the 60s we have We Too Must Love, the same author different book. So that's a big shift. We walk alone to We Too Must Love, right? And then slowly as we walk through the archives, you start to see ads. So there's organizations. And the 60s, even though the bar culture didn't change a lot, there was this real imperative at the end of the war to get Rosie the Riveter to go home, to fire women from, you know, get women out of the military, um, give men back their jobs from the factories. So if you were gay and you had left your home of origin, this is one of the first times there's this real exodus to the cities and queer people have the ability to be in communities. So these gay bars become super important in the 50s as the only place. So we start to see as we go forward, um, like for instance, in the 60s, there's this ad for a gay bar in Kansas City. And the bar is called Linda's Little Log Cabin, and it's a train. And there's a suggestive woman in like a 60s turtleneck and capris going like, you know, come on to Linda's Little Log Cabin in Kansas City, you know? And then as you go further, you have ads from Maxi's in Vegas saying all women bartenders. So that really was the trajectory of these hidden things, hidden inside pulps, to starting to have organizations, to starting to see actual ads in magazines. And then, like the Damron guy that finished publishing in 2016, where you actually have a book on a shelf where you can see where lesbians go. Great. Can we jump down maybe to Stephanie? Can. Who I think was a first timer. Uh, well, we're really, we're kind of short on time. So I'm just going to say like really briefly, because I helped Ari with the archive piece, is that I think what Ari was interested in is how have non-binary folk been um, involved in research on non-binary folk? And so we looked at several examples from the archives and then really tried to use that to inform how Ari approached their project. And I think, is there anything else? I think um, it's really been, it's, it's, it's a little bit different than some of the stories you're hearing because there's still not enough I mean, not there's enough on any of them, but like, especially, um, you know, if you look in psychology, research has gone back on, for example, homosexuality, um, and there, there's a lot of contentious stuff, and we talked about that in the DSM. Non-binary um, individuals is even less represented, um, and so it was really an interesting um, path to kind of say, like, okay, well, what is there? And like looking across, you know, pieces across the country, you know, like different pieces of like on just takes on gender, and even there, that that perspective, that voice is sort of silenced. And so it's kind of been a very interesting um, journey for us both, uh, I think, um, kind of looking at those. We'll talk about it more in the podcast. And I think we, re we have not, this is not um, typically my area of interest going to the archives. So I didn't know what to expect. And it was really, really amazing. Um, and I think also um, Ari and myself are both as you know, women of color, members of the community, um, and, you know, trying to find that intersection. Uh, we kind of bonded as well. We've had conversations about it. Um, how this can, uh, there's this misconception of when you do research, all opinion, all identity gets left to the door. And I think that's not, you can't ask that. I think you definitely can be objective about how you analyze data, but to ask someone, you know, 
old school method is like your gender, your race, your ethnicity, your sexuality, your identity doesn't matter, and I don't think that's the case. Um, and, and Ari's a beautiful example of how her own life experiences really were formative and constructed her entire course of research. Um, and I think that's really a beautiful thing to see from back when she was in high school to her completed thesis. Who's left, Sid? Um, sure, yeah. <laughs> I don't um, need to put you on the spot. Um, um, like some other folks, um, my topic kind of was sparked by teaching um, a few years ago. I reached out to Ellen about you know bringing one of my uh, Nature of Queer classes into the archive, and I hadn't been to the archive yet. So Ellen pulled some boxes that she thought would um, possibly be interesting, and I spent a day or two in the summer uh, reading through things, and that letter about noise and its impact on sex life just really stood out <laughs> as, as uh, pretty interesting. There's so something about it that I think it's not obvious why it's interesting. Um, I've brought it up to folks, um, and mostly the reaction is, huh. <laughs> like, so I was curious basically to follow that curiosity and um, see where it led. Since I, I mentioned earlier my research on uh, science and debates about trans identity, um, the, you know, John Money's shadow in those debates really looms large. Um, he's uh, someone that, went in coining that term gender, he had a very narrow kind of vision of uh, what gender is in our lives. He had this sense that um, it's something that is formed in childhood and that it has this kind of developmental arc to um, one or two, one, one of one or two places, like very binary. Um, vision of, of gender, and he really wielded that vision uh, against his patients uh, in his research for decades. Um, and, you know, connecting to what Stephanie was saying about the history of psych um, and the... Uh, it's not great. Yeah. Um, you know, one, <laughs> Sorry. one area where you see uh, kind of non-binary and representation in uh, the archives of sexology are the patients that come in in and don't come back, um, or the patients that come in and are, you know, they are asking for treatment and they're refused, right? And so it's that kind of silence of not getting the rest of their story, right? Um, you just have that little, you know, thread of that moment in their life and what happened to them? We don't really know, right? Um, and I find that very fascinating. Um, like other folks, there's this kind of reverence of the archive. It's really cool to be looking at old documents, and I was really stoked to actually find the article that Jan Daly wrote about noise and its impact on her sex life, because um, I hadn't actually seen that she had you know, published it. Um, it was hard to track down. Um, but having that kind of reverence is, is um, I have, have that as well, but also one of the kind of themes of my episode is just the violence of the archive, that, you know, the, um, the documents that are deemed worth uh, protecting and storing and organizing are usually documents of very privileged voices. And so we have these documents about John Money because he's heralded as this very important figure in trans medicine. 
and we don't have the voices of all of those trans people that were turned away from his clinic or that were deemed not trans enough or not stable enough or not worthy of the care that they wanted. Um, and so that was, you know, kind of, I kind of go off at the end of the episode. <laughs> I wasn't trying to be objective. <laughs> I was like, um, um, to the extent that I go off, I'm not that, <laughs> not that wild You're of a very person. You're very articulate the whole time. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so there's some reverence of like, wow, you know, stumbling on one, you know, letter can get, kind of get stuck in your mind for years. And then all of the stuff that's not there being you know, pretty ugly, those absences and those questions that just hang in the air. Great. And then I think we have Omar. We are super tight on time. I'm so sorry, that's Omar. Okay. <laughs> Any comments about yes. that? Um, so I was trained interdisciplinary methods in my doctoral program, fortunately. So I did a lot of archival research. I spent a month in Gloria Anzaldúa's archive. And, uh, and I did done other archival search, but I always felt my career or my, my academic career has been walking through the archive because I'm, I'm um, focused on the work of John Retchie and his work I feel like is walking through a queer archive since he's writing about it since the 40s, 50s and still today. So um, it was really amazing just to browse through uh, and to work through these archives now and also the digital archives I just looked at them like the sundial archive to see what how they mention HIV. Uh, from the 80s to now. So it was really interesting to see that uh, progression. So uh, it was just, uh, it's just, it's slow, but it's just when it, like, just to reiterate what everybody said, this idea that, and I'll just mention one thing that I found in the newsletter from ACT UP, they had a section, AIDS in the Latino community, and I was just so gratified that they had, and it was also uh, translated to Spanish, and they mentioned uh, this person, Michael Puente, who was the, the head of, uh, or vice president of this organization called Cara Cara, a, a, Latin, a Latinx AIDS organization. And I thought I have, I wrote his name down, I thought I have to look him up, see if he's still around. Then I just uh, happened to run across another document online and it, uh, from written a person who knew him, and then she wrote that he had died a few years after that. So. When I was coming out in the early like 80s, early 90s, I was starving for queer, queer elders. But of course, my queer elders are all dying at that time. So that's what still motivates me, that even if they're not here in corporal form, that I can find their voices in the archive. Mm. So. Well, it's beautiful, Omar, thanks. Uh, so with our remaining three minutes, do we have any questions from the audience? Can I throw a question now to Emma? <laughs> Because I was wondering, you know, as a student researcher, what was surprising to you about the archives that we pulled that at that intersection of Catholicism and queerness? Well, as a student, um, this, this is my first time actually diving into the archives um, and really taking on that approach from comparing um, online, physically, what you can research now that everything's available through the web, um, seeing what current news is focusing on um, Catholicism and queer communities now adjusting into Catholicism, but also the, um, the movement and the actions that these archives show and that historically the movement has always been there, but now even after it's gone backwards and forwards, um, people are still trying to make a, um, it known now. All right. 
think that's really just about time. So if anybody does have any questions, they're welcome to come up and, and address them to the panel. And aside from that, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. And thanks to our panelists, our panelists.